You're listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the historic moon landing. To commemorate the anniversary, the Nixon Library has a new, exciting, and interactive exhibit throughout the year. It's called Apollo 11, One Giant Leap for Mankind. Our guests today not only witnessed the Apollo and splash down in the South Pacific 50 years ago on July 24, 1969, he was a participant as a young Navy lieutenant aboard on the nearby USS Arlington, which President Nixon visited the previous day. His name is Gerald Cordell. Mr. Cordell spent 21 years in the U.S. Navy. He took part in the all-nuclear-powered task force on board the USS South Carolina. He was the tactical digital links branch head with the U.S. Commander-in-Chief of Pacific Command in Hawaii, and he worked for the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon and the National Military Command Center, otherwise known as the War Room. He was on duty the day President Reagan was shot. Mr. Cordell was recently featured in an article in the San Diego Union-Tribune, which commemorated the Apollo 11 events. Mr. Cordell, welcome. Thank you. Just to kind of start off, what were you doing on the USS Arlington? Um, I was the, called the Commanding Officer's Tactical Plot Officer, otherwise on other ships known as the Combat Information Center Officer. deals mostly with the radars and operations of the ship. And... Tell us a little bit about uh, why it was there for the, uh, why was the USS Arlington there for the splashdown in the South Pacific on January 24th, 1969, or July 24th, 1969? Yeah. Uh, Back then, communications were not as they are today. There were almost no satellites where one could bounce a, a message up off and have come back down. So most communications were done using low-frequency waves, which are over the horizon, very slow and subject to weather interruptions and so forth. So in order to have uh, reliable communications, you had to have a communication station somewhere on shore pick up your message traffic to make sure it related to wherever in the world the message was to go to. The alternative to this was that there was one ship in the Atlantic and one ship in the Pacific that was, in essence, a floating communication station in its own right that could get close to you and provide really reliable, really long-haul, rapid communications. And we had one of the few uh, dishes that was able to reach one of the very few satellites that were up then. So it was an enormous communications enhancement to have one of these ships close by uh, if you had a large operation going on. And that's why the uh, USS Arlington was uh, pegged to do the Apollo 8 recovery, the Apollo 10 recovery, Apollo 11, and Right before Apollo 11, we did the uh, President Nixon, President Two of South Vietnam's conference in Midway Island. On the, on the splashdown, what was the Arlington's job in relation to the USS Hornet? Uh, it was to, well, the President and the uh, Press Secretary, Secretary of State, and the entire astronaut corps who were not either in space or on duty in Houston, uh, came aboard and spent the night there uh, because we had so many Uh, communications capabilities. They wanted the president on a ship that could provide a lot of communications. Uh, And the White House Communications Agency and the Secret Service came in and set up pretty much every telephone on the ship that you could pick up and call anywhere in the world, which is what uh, White House Communication Agency does. And so they wanted the president there, and he only took off at, at not the last minute, but as late as possible on the Hornet so that he could have the immediate communications capability he was used to in the White House or in Air Force One at his fingertips. 
And just recently, I read uh, an article online from an officer similar to myself who was on the USS Hornet, the actual recovery ship, uh, who was assigned as President Nixon's escort the morning of the splashdown. And he related, and I had never known this, that in fact, during the course of the night, the Hornet had a complete communications failure. So had the president been there instead of in Arlington, it could have been a bad situation. So it's much more reliable to have those people on board overnight until the, the last minute when they needed to leave uh, with our capabilities. Tell us a little bit about the uh, Marine One landing on the Arlington and uh, President Nixon's subsequent arrival. Uh, yes, they had flown Air Force One into Johnston Atoll. There was an Air Force landing strip there and then took helicopters the I think it was about several hundred miles we were southwest of there <clears throat> to our flight uh, deck. We were a, a previously a uh, an aircraft carrier in World War II and converted to a communication ship after the war. Uh, so we were able to take a number of helicopters on board. I think there were four in total. They had the presidential party, the press party, the secret service, and a number of other folks, some spare doctors since we were in the middle of nowhere, so they wanted to make sure there were plenty of doctors available for the president in addition to the ones that were on the ship. <clears throat> and so the Marine One landing um, had to be very precise because we were, you know, there was nowhere else around there uh, close to us, and so I was assigned to be the officer of the deck to make sure the ship was in the, the precise position regarding the relative and, and a true wind across the water uh, that the helicopters needed to uh, make their landing. And so there were no computers back those days that would do that. So I had to do it by hand using uh, parallel rules and a little compass on a uh, board that had circles on it. Um, and so it was kind of interesting doing that and driving the ship at the same time and with a Secret Service agent literally physically leaning on me the whole time, looking over my shoulder with his gun poking me in the back that he was wearing. So it was kind of a stressful situation, but I did it for both the Marine One landing and then the Marine One, well, actually all the helicopters, uh, departure about started at about 3.45 or 4 o'clock in the morning, the morning of splashdown. So it was pitch black everywhere around. Uh, both we and the Hornet were a darkened ship, to keep our night vision up. So things are pretty much done in as dark a situation as you can imagine. When President Nixon came on, on board the, uh, the flight deck, uh, what, was that, what were his activities uh, on the Arlington? Did he meet with any of the naval officers? Uh, did he, did he, was he, um, w w describe that day and describe what, uh, the experience with President Nixon. Uh, yes, when he came on board, he was with Frank Borman, who at that time was not going back into space anymore, but was an advisor to the president. Uh, he had Secretary of State Rogers, uh, the Special Assistant Henry Kissinger, uh, Ron Ziegler, who was the press secretary, and a number of other dignitaries, and, and a lot of the astronauts off-duty. And so when they landed, yes, he was greeted by the commanding officer, the executive officer, and a number of honorary side boys who were you know, people who form a, a quadrant when you land and salute. And then he was uh, escorted across the flight deck to uh, a microphone where he gave some remarks. Um, and then he immediately what he wanted to do more than anything else was to go around and shake the hands of all the young sailors who were uh, manning the rail, that is, lining the perimeter of the ship. Uh, we have about a thousand-man crew, so there were a lot of them up on deck then, all in their dress whites. 
And he went down the line with those kids and asking their age and where they're from and shaking hands. And, of course, he couldn't do all four or 500 of them that were there, but he did as many as he, he could. And then um, later he I was coming down off the bridge, that is the bridge being the area up in the top of the ship where you drive the ship from. I happened to be coming down at the bottom of the ladder when the president was finished with that. And his aide, who, of course, had his schedule for him, said he, he asked his aide, where do I go next? And he said, well, Mr. President, the, uh, the, the Secretary of State and all the astronauts are waiting for you up in the officer's wardroom to uh, receive them up there. And uh, he said, well, uh, they can wait. What I want to do is meet the young men who do the work around this place. Where are the young sailors? And he said, well, they're down in the mess decks, that is the, the chow hall, if you will, or where they ate, uh, having their dinner. And he goes, well, that's where I want to go. Let's go down and meet them. So rather than go up to the officer's wardroom and have a a big official reception, he led the, his cordon down to the mess decks where the young sailors were all sitting there eating. And much to their surprise, um, he went in and shook hands with all of them, asked them where they were from. Uh, and I, one instance, he autographed the young guy's, uh, young sailor's uh, shoulder splint that he had on because he'd received a steam burn. And um, interviewed the chief cook and asked him how he liked being the chief cook on board and how long he'd been in the Navy and where he's from. And and uh, he was just bubbling over. And I've read several recounts this summer alone from, you know, I've been kind of researching this myself to make sure any recollections I had were uh, accurate over the 50 years. But pretty much something I read universally through everything I look into is that not only the people who travel with the president, but the cabinet members, the press corps, and everybody had never seen, nor would never see again, President Nixon in such a bubbly, fun-loving mood. He was having the time of his life. He had been a naval officer, but I think he was in air intelligence and had really never spent a night, of, a night aboard ship. This was his first time to actually be way out at sea on a Navy ship surrounded by sailors, and he was just loving it. And, of course, he loved it the next day, being the president who was in office when the astronauts came back from the moon. But no one had ever seemed in such a good mood from start to finish of the whole evolution. Did you have any interaction with President Nixon that day? Um, I just kept out of his way that day, although the next morning I had more than, <laughs> more than the usual interaction. As I mentioned, it was uh, pitch black the next morning at about his the first helicopters were supposed to go off at 4, and his was supposed to go off at 4.40. And so at about 3.45 in, in darkened ship, I was going up the ladder, up back up to the bridge to take control of the ship for the helicopter departure. Uh, what I didn't see was at the same time that he was coming down the ladder uh, wearing that dark charcoal gray suit you always see when you see him waving at the astronauts in the hyperbaric chamber. And so we collided about mid-ladder in the middle of the night, and I looked up to see who it was I had run into. I wasn't expecting somebody coming down, and it was the president. And, I, and, of course, behind him was his Secret Service agent who was giving me a look like he could kill me if he could get his hands on me. Anyway, the, uh, the president and I get down to the bottom of the ladder, and I apologize for running into him. And he said, oh, that's all right. And it was dark in here. I didn't see you either. Uh, and so... Um, he was, I knew he was getting ready to take off, and so I said, well, Mr. President, you really should stay on board the Arlington because we've done two other capsule recoveries, and they almost land right on top of us, so we seem to have a capsule magnet on board, so if you want to see the recovery up close, you should stay here. And he said, well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'd love to stay. 
but I have to get over to the Hornet because the press is expecting me over there and everybody, and so that's where the astronauts will go. Um, so I have to leave. So I went up and he got in his helicopter and I was up on the, the bridge of the ship uh, getting ready to do my calculations again to turn the ship for the, the takeoff. And I happened to notice that we were, I gotta say, way down in the, in the Pacific near nothing else. So it was pitch black from the sky, the sea, everything. And uh, the only light I could see was a light shining through the window of uh, Marine One, his helicopter, back illuminated with his head inside that window, leaned down, leading briefings. And I thought, that probably really typifies what the loneliness of that office is. I mean, you're kind of a one, one-off responsibility of the things you need to do. Because that was the only light in the whole universe that I could see was him studying those briefings inside uh, the helicopter. Tell us a little bit about, you said that the USS Arlington could see the splashdown up close. And since you guys were involved in the recovery exit, uh, recovery, recovery effort, you had the best view at all. Were you able to see uh, the reentry uh, of the capsule onto Earth? And could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, the Hornet and we were about 17 miles apart. Uh, we, nobody wanted to be literally right under where they're going to come down and have to get out from under them. Uh, they eventually splashed down about three miles from us and about 14 miles from the Hornet. Uh, but I was out on deck walking. It was kind of overcast, so um, we weren't able to see much in the way of the fiery reentry. but I was walking across the deck to go somewhere out on t uh, the flight deck, and I heard a double sonic boom, which I had never heard before. I didn't know that things coming back from space actually make a double sonic boom, not the normal one you hear when the jet goes over. And I looked up, and it wasn't very long after that that you could see the capsule and the three orange and white striped parachutes, and it went over top of us and splashed down uh, about three miles on our port or left side, so we could see the whole evolution there. The frogmen were being uh, dumped in the water from the, the helicopters arrived really quickly from the Hornet, and I could see them uh, open the hatch and throw the breathing apparatus uh, and isolation suits into the astronauts and reclose the door real quickly because we didn't know if they were contaminated with moon organisms at that time or not. Uh, and so then I watched them scrub the capsule down and then um, took quite a while actually. There was a lot of duties both inside the capsule and out at that time. Uh, and then the astronauts started to get out and get into the rubber raft that they had inflated. And at that time I remembered I wasn't here to watch all this. I had a job to do as well, so I went inside uh, to tell my guys to make sure we plotted that splashdown point in time very precisely and uh, get it sent off to Houston Manned Spacecraft Center. <clears throat> and so um, later I saw when I came back out, they had pretty much lifted the astronauts off and were towing the, um, the Hornet was coming over to retrieve the capsule. So. Our job at that time was to, since we were a very large ship, uh, get upwind and block the wind to smooth the seas for the recovery. And I was just yesterday actually looking at a podcast done by the first frogman who went in the water, and he noted that when he first went in, the seas were six to eight feet. So it was doable, but it was pretty rough, and particularly when the capsule was upside down when it initially landed before it uh, inflated the, the balloons that popped it upright. 
but then he also noted in his commentary that the seas got calmer later, and I think that's because we were doing what we were doing, which was staying upwind and blocking the wind to make it calmer for them. Looking back 50 years on, uh, what, do you, what are your reflections about being part of such a historic event? Well, the, the oneness of it, the singularity of it, because I knew that it would, I mean, there have been landings before where people went around the moon, and there will be landings, hopefully, again, where people come back from the moon, but uh, this will be the only time where any craft or vessel or anything landed on Earth that took off from somewhere other than the Earth. And so I thought, actually, what came to mind was Charles Lindbergh's flight, uh, to Paris, to Le Berger Airport, uh, which was, of course, uh, a world-shaking event, but at least he took off and landed from the same planet, the same heavenly body. This was the first and only time that somebody would come from somewhere else, and it was quite important that people uh, at NASA note how close their algorithms were to uh, landing, particularly since we had to move the landing site 250 miles at the last minute due to tropical depression, cloudy, I believe it was. <clears throat> so there were a lot of last minute adjustments. But I thought that it was kind of a shame that this was in the middle of nowhere. If it was on land somewhere, there would be a brass plaque and people would visit it and it would be a really honored site people would drive to to see where the first capsule landed. And there'd probably be a capsule there on a stand or something. But it was just a piece of water in the middle of nowhere, and it was kind of a shame that it would not be able to be commemorated in the future. Our guest today is Gerald Cordell, a retired U.S. Navy officer who worked on board the USS Arlington when President Nixon came aboard and the Apollo 11 astronauts splashed down in the South Pacific. His role in these events were featured recently in the San Diego Union-Tribune. Mr. Cordell, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroides and Yorba Linda.